Good morning, everybody. Great to greet you today, and I want to welcome all the folks joining online. Thanks for being a part of us, or our service, rather, today. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, find the 26th chapter. Let me hear pages turning to Matthew chapter 26. While you're doing that, uh, we had another incredible night to shine this past Friday. It was our fifth consecutive year to host this special needs prom, and it was the best it's ever been. I hope I say that every year. We had 350 uh, honored prom guests. We had 400 caregivers. That's the prom guest parents or caretakers that we served, and we had about 1,000 volunteers. And so it was just an incredible evening, and I want to say thank you to everyone who supported and everyone who participated. Yeah. In Night to Shine. If you didn't get a chance to be a part this year, then we'll be doing it again next year. So you just wait and sign up when that opportunity rolls around. This weekend, we are returning to our verse-by-verse journey uh, through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. Let me just tell you that we started this journey through the Gospel of Matthew all the way back in November of 2016. And because Matthew is such a lengthy book, 28 chapters, what I did is I divided Matthew up into different sections so that when we concluded a lengthy section, we could take a little bit of a break and talk about something different, either for two weeks or four weeks or sometimes even six weeks. But here we are on the weekend of February 8th and 9th, 2020, getting ready to conclude something we started back in November of 2016 by looking at the final section of Matthew's gospel, a section that I am simply calling the king has come. And I'm calling it the king has come because in these final chapters, chapter 26, 27, and 28, in these final chapters of Matthew, we see the deity and the majesty and the royalty of Jesus unlike we've seen anywhere else in Matthew's gospel. We see that Jesus is more than just a good man, and he's more than just a great teacher, which is what so many people want to say about him today. We see that he is nothing less than the absolute King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, as we begin this last section of Matthew's gospel, I need to tell you that it reads a little different from the other parts of Matthew that we've already studied up to this point. In that It reads a little bit like a movie script because it cuts from scene to scene and conversation to conversation as the story of Jesus builds to a conclusion. We're going to see that in the very first 16 verses of Matthew 26, which is our text this morning, as Matthew focuses our attention on three specific things. Now, we've got a lot to cover, and so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on introduction, and so I'm going to invite you, if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 26, and you're able this morning to go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. I've got my Bible open to Matthew 26, my NIV Bible, and you follow along as I read verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, 
Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. If you're someone who likes to take notes, we're going to jump right in this morning. And I want you to write down next to number one in your insert these words, the sovereignty of God. That's number one, the sovereignty of God. And I'll begin by giving you a definition of the sovereignty of God, which is one of the most important principles of Christian theology, of Christian theology. Uh, most believers really acknowledge the sovereignty of God. The controversy with regard to the sovereign of God, sovereignty of God among many believers comes to trying to understand how he exercises it. But here's a simple definition for the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the belief that God is the supreme authority and all things, everyone say all things, all things are under his control. God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. It's the belief that God has the right to govern, to oversee, to direct all things according to his own good pleasure. And I'm telling you, friends, we see the sovereignty of God right from the beginning as we open our Bibles back to the Gospel of Matthew, this time chapter 26. We see it in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to begin with verse 2. Look back there for a moment. Actually, verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, the, all these things that Matthew is referencing is what we studied the last time we were in Matthew's gospel. It was Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and what we call the Olivet Discourse. But now Jesus is alone with his disciples, and in verse 2 he says, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, here's what I want you to understand, friends. This is the fourth and the final time that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. This is the fourth and the final time that he gives them this message. And we've seen every one of the references so far in Matthew's gospel. The first one came in chapter 16 and verse 21, and then we saw it again in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. We saw it again in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, and now we see it here in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 2. This is the fourth and final time Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and tells them he's going to die on the cross by being crucified. And while I don't want to sound overly dramatic, I want you to know that this is a confirmation of the truth of everything that we've read and everything that we've studied in Matthew up to this point, because everything that we've studied in Matthew up to this point has been nothing more than a prologue to what's about to happen to Jesus, and what's about to happen to Jesus is the cross, which is the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan for all of humankind and the very reason why Jesus came into the world. The cross is everything when it comes to Jesus. The cross is everything when it comes to salvation because without the cross, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Without the cross, there is no gospel. No gospel. And I don't want to assume that you understand all of the words that I'm using. I don't want to assume that you know exactly what I mean when I use the word gospel. And so let me 
explain that to you a little bit. I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, and this is Matthew recording the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it began like this. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The word gospel or sometimes translated good news like it is in my NIV Bible, comes from the word euangelion in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. And literally, it means good news. It's the good news that Jesus came into the world to offer us a new and a better life. Somebody say amen to that. That's what Jesus came into the world to do. But it would never happen apart from the cross. The cross is everything when it comes to Jesus. And the cross is everything when it comes to salvation. And so nothing about the cross, nothing that we're going to be reading from here through the end of Matthew chapter 27, nothing about the cross should take us by surprise because the reality of the cross is seen over and over again in the Bible from the beginning to the end. You know, I know this doesn't describe everyone that's here this morning or everyone maybe that's listening to me online, but when I was sitting in my office writing this message this week and I was thinking about the reality of the cross and how it's seen all throughout the Bible, I couldn't help but think about all those years when I was a little boy going to church and in particular going to Sunday school. I know some of you have had that experience as well and some of you probably did not and that's okay, but I, I thought about all those years of going to Sunday school and that little church that I grew up in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's where I learned all the Bible stories that are so precious to me today. I remember the names and the faces of all the men and the women who were my teachers in those years. And as I thought back about those stories, I realized this truth that the cross, or at least the shadow of the cross, can be seen in so many of those stories. I think all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and how God accepted the sacrifice of uh, Abel but rejected the sacrifice of Cain. And in that sacrifice of Abel, you see the shadow of the cross. I think about Genesis chapter 6 through 8 and how Noah built this incredible ark and how God saved Noah and his family on that ark when the rains came and the floods came. And in that ark, you see the shadow of the cross. And I think about Genesis chapter 22 and how God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac. Think about this with me for a moment. That son that he waited for, that promised heir, that promised son that he waited for for years and years and years. And now he was finally here and Abraham for the first time could see the reality of God's promise and God's covenant in his life coming true. And yet God one day says, I want you to take your only son to the mountain that I show you in the region of Moriah where you'll sacrifice him. Unthinkable. But even more unthinkable than that was that Abraham was obedient to do that. And he took his son Isaac, and they started this journey, and they got to a mountain on Moriah, and he built an altar, and he put everything in place, and he strapped his son down on the altar, and he raised a knife to take his life. And God stopped him through an angel, and God provided for him. You remember the story? In the thicket, there was a ram that was caught by his horns, and God provided the ram. God said, now I know that you are faithful. Now I know that I can trust your obedience. And so the ram was sacrificed in its place, and you see in that the shadow of the cross. What about that familiar story of Moses who was in the wilderness, spending 40 years in the wilderness as a complete nobody when God shows up in a burning bush and tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt where he spent the first 40 years of his life 
as a prince of Egypt. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go because the Israelites, God's people, had been slaves there for hundreds of years. And so Moses goes back and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's what God's message is. And you know the story. Pharaoh was reluctant to do that. And so God, through Moses, sent plague after plague after plague to convince him to let his people go. But every plague resulted in the same stubbornness of Pharaoh until the final plague came, the tenth and the final plague, which I always thought of as a little boy as the plague of the death angel. You remember this story and how God sent a death angel into the land of Egypt to take the life of every firstborn person in each and every family, but because he loved his children, he provided for them and said, tell the Israelites, Moses, tell the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the door frames of your home so that when the angel comes through the land of Egypt, the angel will pass over, don't miss the significance of that word, pass over your home without bringing any harm. And you see in that the shadow of the cross and you can go on and on. You go to the Old Testament story of Ruth and you see the shadow of the cross and the reality of Boaz becoming Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And if I had time, I could continue. The reality of the cross, the shadow of the cross is seen in countless Old Testament lives and countless Old Testament events because all of God's word points to the cross. All of the Old Testament pointed to the cross and then you get to the New Testament and Jesus begins his journey to the cross and you meet a man named John the Baptist who, by the way, was the last prophet of the Old Covenant, the last prophet of that Old Testament. And he sees Jesus in the very beginning because he's the forerunner of Jesus and he points to him. And in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we're reminded again of the cross. The cross was everything when it came to the life of Jesus. The cross was everything when it came to God's plan for salvation, and no one understood that more than Jesus. And that's why Matthew chapter 26 begins in verse 2 with Jesus again telling his disciples for the fourth and final time that he was going to die on the cross. And in that, friends, we see the sovereignty of God. We see the control of God, the plan of God. For years and years, unbelieving skeptics have tried to explain away Jesus' death as some kind of quirk of fate or just the execution of another religious zealot who's trying to start some kind of a religious revolution. But none of that, none of those kinds of stories square with the biblical account. Every part of Jesus' life operated on God's divine timetable, and no human plan, no human power could interfere Jesus understood that. Look at these words Jesus spoke in John chapter 10. This it really gives us further evidence of the sovereignty of God that's at work behind the life of Jesus. The gospel of John, by the way, the theme of John's gospel is to present Jesus not just as an ordinary man, but as God in human flesh. And you see it in these words. Jesus said, for this reason my father loves, or excuse me, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. God was in control of Jesus' life. We see the sovereignty of God in the reality of the cross. When Jesus spoke the words that we read in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 2, there had already been multiple times when his enemies had plotted to kill him, but every 
attempt failed. They were unable to do it because God was always the one that was in control of Jesus' life. The religious leaders, John's gospel tells us that the religious leaders who hated Jesus had begun plotting his death all the way back in John chapter 5 and verse 18. This is what we read there. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Again, the theme of John's gospel is to present Jesus as God in human flesh. But I'll say it again, every plot, every attempt up to this point has failed because it wasn't the right time, which is to say it wasn't God's time because only the sovereign grace of God could bring Jesus to the cross. But we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, and now that time has come. And so Jesus says again to his disciples for the fourth and the final time, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And don't miss the significance of this happening during the Passover, which was that time in Jerusalem when all the sacrificial lambs were slain, but all of the lambs that had been sacrificed over time were nothing more than just faint symbols of what Jesus, the true Lamb of God, was going to accomplish when he was sacrificed on the cross. And so we see the sovereignty of God right from the beginning in Jesus' reminder that he's about to die. But it's not just in the words of Jesus in verse 2 that we see the sovereignty of God. We also see the sovereignty of God in verses 3 through 5. Look back there with me for just a moment. Because then this is what I was talking about when I told you that this part of Matthew's gospel reads a little different because it shifts from scene to scene and conversation to conversation, almost like a movie script. And you get to verse 3 after Jesus has this time with the disciples. And we read, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast. That's the Passover. Not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was talking to the disciples about his upcoming death, these evil, sinister men who hated Jesus under the leadership of Caiaphas, who wanted nothing more <clears throat> excuse me, than to see the destruction of Jesus, were plotting to arrest him and kill him. And notice that in verse 5, Matthew specifically, as he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, specifically mentions that these evil men did not want to arrest Jesus and kill him during the feast, which is the Passover, <clears throat> or there may be a riot among the people. See, Jerusalem would have been overflowing with people during the time of the Passover. People, and I'm not embellishing this, would have come from all over the world to worship during the Passover. I think I probably told you earlier when we studied the Gospel of Matthew that the Jewish historian, a man named Josephus, wrote that some 256,000 sacrificial lambs were slain during a typical Passover. Think about that for a moment. 256,000 sacrificial lambs would have been slain during a typical Passover. And because tradition required that no fewer than 10 people were to eat from one sacrificial lamb, the number of people present in Jerusalem could have been more than 2 million when Jesus was there for the crucifixion. I can't find words to describe to you how bustling the city of Jerusalem would have been. Some of you who have been with me to the Holy Land, and we've been to the city of Jerusalem. Remember, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the old city. And the people would have been packed into that area like anything 
like nothing rather than we've ever seen. Many of the people who would have been present there at the, at, at Jerusalem during the Passover would have been from Galilee and other places where Jesus had gained so much popularity because of his teaching, because of the miracles that he'd performed. Many of them would have been present just days earlier when Jesus rode into the city on, of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and they would have been the ones who were throwing their garments and palm branches down on the ground in front of him and shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because Jesus up to this point was still incredibly popular among many, many people. But here's where you see the sovereignty of God again in the words of these religious leaders who hated Jesus. While the Passover was the worst possible time to put Jesus to death from their standpoint because they feared it would cause a riot, they weren't in charge, and the Passover was exactly the time that God had planned in his sovereignty for Jesus to die. And so while they thought they were in control, they were nothing more than pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. They were nothing more than pawns in God's sovereign plan of redemption. And honestly, I wish we had time to talk more about this because this truth is so incredible. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think it is that controls every detail of your life? Do you think you're in control of your life? And we have a certain amount of control over our lives because God has given us a free will and we make choices and we make decisions and we direct our lives in different ways. But at the end of the day, God has complete control and authority over all things because he's a sovereign God. And we see that in the death of Jesus. If you're taking notes, right down next to number two. The second thing that we see in this passage, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, is the sacrificial worship of Mary. <clears throat> We see that in verses 6 through 13. Look back there with me for a moment. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here's some things I need to tell you about context before we talk specifically about those words. This story of Jesus being anointed by a woman in Bethany is found in all four gospels. It's found here in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, in Luke chapter 7, and finally in John chapter 12. And some students of the Bible believe that this was a singular event that's just recorded in all four Gospels. Other Bible students believe that Jesus was actually anointed on multiple times. The reason why there's the discrepancy is because while all four stories are told or excuse me, while the story is told in all four Gospels, and there are some similarities in each one, there are some slight differences as well. And so what I'm going to tell you is this. You are free to decide what you want to believe about, whether or not this was a singular event or something that happened twice or three times or even four times in Jesus' life. But I'm going to tell you this. I believe that it was just a single event, and I believe when we get to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 6, then what we are actually seeing is a flashback to something that happened on the previous Saturday, and so I'm going to teach this passage from that perspective. 
Jesus was at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Simon the leper was somebody that had to have been healed by Jesus. I say that because if you were a leper in Jesus' day, you were not allowed to live in a town. You were not allowed to live in a village or a city, and you were not allowed to associate with non-lepers. And because leprosy in Jesus' day was an incurable disease from a medical standpoint, the only way that he would have been able to have this dinner party and invite Jesus and other people is if Jesus had healed him. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us who this woman was, but if you look at it from the same perspective that I'm looking at it, and you go back to John chapter 12, and John's account of this story, then we see that it was Mary who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were some of Jesus' closest earthly friends, and they lived in a village called Bethany, which was just a short walk from the city of Jerusalem. And here's what we know about Mary. We know that Mary was a woman with a spiritual heart. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of a story that's told about Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Just listen as I read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. And so we see the spiritual heart of Mary in this story where when Jesus comes to her home, while Martha is only worried about making preparations to be the best hostess, Mary recognizes this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'm not going to miss, and so I'm going to spend my time at the feet of Jesus. Well, you see that same spiritual heart in this part of our passage and this story of Mary and her anointing of Jesus because Mary understood in this moment what the disciples couldn't understand or what the disciples refused to understand, and that was that Jesus was about to die, even though Jesus has already told them four times that he was about to die and that he had to die to accomplish God's plan of salvation. And so she came with this alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. John's account said that she also anointed his feet. And so what we see is Mary so overwhelmed by her love for Jesus that she lost all sense of of restraint and all sense of caution as she worshiped him in a demonstrative and an unforgettable way. She was so overwhelmed by Jesus in the moment that she worshiped him without restraint and without caution. If I ask you the question, when was the last time you were so overwhelmed by Jesus that you worshiped him without restraint or caution? What would you say? If someone were to ask me that question this morning, in honesty, I would have to say, I don't know, or I can't remember. And so we learn a powerful lesson about worship here when the disciples saw what she did, they were indignant, or in other words, they were offended. John's gospel tells us it was, tells us it was Judas who led out with the uh, idea of being offended because they said about this, Judas said about this, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money from the sale given to the poor? Judas was also, John tells us, the keeper of the disciples' money. He was the treasurer for the group. 
But Jesus responds by speaking directly into the criticism. And after he commends Mary for doing such a beautiful thing, he says again, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be spoken or told in memory of me. He was basically saying, listen, there's a time to honor me through caring for the poor. Nobody had a heart for poor people and marginalized people and, and ignored people more than Jesus did. He says, there's a, there's a time for honoring me through caring for the poor, but there's also a time for honoring me through genuine worship. And Mary recognizes that this is one of those times. Now, I'm going to push the pause button for just a moment as we have been going through the narrative of the text and tell you, that I see three really powerful truths about worship from what Mary did here that we need to learn from. And you should write these down somewhere in your notes. The first one is this. Mary shows us that when it comes to worship, Jesus is worth the very best you have to give. When it comes to worship, Jesus is worth the very best you have to give. What, Mary's, what Mary did in her act of worship could only be described by one word, and that would be the word extravagant. And we need to be extravagant in our worship and give Jesus the very best that we have. We need to give him the very best of our time. We need to give him the very best of our attention. We need to give him the very best of our, our possessions, our money, our resources. And you can go on and on and on. Because when it comes to worship, Jesus is worth the very best that we have to give. If you want to love and worship Jesus in a way that pleases him, in a way that pleases his heart then give him your best in worship. Give him the best part of your week. Give him the best part of your day. Give him the best part of everything that you are and everything that you have. Be extravagant. You know, we live in a day and age, at least in the, the Western world and the Western part of the world where many people who are Christians don't give worship a priority at all. And I understand, friends, that worship is not defined solely by what we're doing right now when you come together once a week, that worship is supposed to be a part of our lives. Worshiping the Lord is supposed to be a part of our lives every day that we live. But we can't ignore the priority of corporate worship, what we're doing right now. We see corporate worship in the Scriptures, and corporate worship is a huge part of the life of every believer. And yet, we live in a day and age when many Christians just ignore corporate worship. We live in a day and age where statistics today say that the average Christian goes to church somewhere between one and two times a month, and it's closer to one than it is to two. I don't want to be average, do you? I don't want to be average when it comes to my worship for the Lord who gave everything for me. All we know about the church and how the church is supposed to operate in the world today is what we see in the Scriptures. And what we see in the Scriptures is, is a church that put a priority on people gathering together. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 2 and the very first description of the very first church in verse 42. This is the church that came from the 3,000 people that made a commitment to Christ on the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 describes their church like this, and they devoted, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is exactly what we're doing right now. And then it says, and to the fellowship, to being together, to the breaking of bread, 
and to prayer. If you're a Christian, corporate worship should be a priority for you. I know the world is a busy place, and I know that Sunday is not a sacred day today like it was, for example, when I was a boy growing up in church. But do we allow the culture of the world to shape our responses to the Scriptures? Or do we allow the Scriptures to shape our response to the world? Corporate worship should be a priority for everyone who is a Christian, who has received forgiveness of sin by the grace of God. The second thing we learn about worship here is this. When it comes to worship, Jesus is worth the criticism you'll face. When Mary poured out that expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, there was immediate criticism from the disciples. And what they did in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 26 is they called her act of worship a waste. These men who were the closest associates of Jesus called her act of worship for him a waste. A gift that was given to Jesus in part to prepare him for the day when he would be nailed to a cross to die for the sins of the world was called a waste. Can you and I together just agree this morning that giving your best to Jesus, the best you have for Jesus in worship is never a waste? Can we agree to that this morning? The third lesson we learn here is this. When it comes to worship, Jesus deserves your attention right now. When the criticism from the disciples came, Jesus said something that's been misunderstood by people over the years. He said, the poor you will always have with you. Now, some social-minded critics would voice the same objection that the disciples voiced anytime money was spent on anything other than helping people who are in need. And the opposite of that is some people would use Jesus' words to justify never doing anything to help needy people. But that's not the point. Neither of those is the point that Jesus was trying to make here. The point that Jesus was trying to make is that Mary should be commended for what she did because she did something right then and there in the moment. She worshiped him in the moment. He said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And Mary, with her spiritual heart, recognized that. There's no question that helping people who are poor and in need is something that we should do, and that honors the heart of Jesus. But Jesus is clearly saying that the most important thing in our lives is our devotion to Him, and the most important time to express our devotion is right now, right now, in the moment. See, the difference between Mary and the disciples was not that she had access to an expensive jar of perfume, and they didn't. The difference is that her heart in that moment was focused on Jesus, and theirs wasn't. And so she did something right there in the moment while they just stood and watched. Jesus was about to experience being beaten, mocked. Spit on, tortured, and murdered on a cross. He was about to be abandoned by almost all of his followers. He was facing anguish beyond belief. And what did his disciples, those who were closest to him, do? They stood on the sideline and they argued about a woman who loved Jesus, about the way, rather, a woman who loved Jesus should spend her money. 
See, the biggest difference between Mary and those disciples was that she worshiped Jesus in the present tense. Her heart was focused on him right then in that moment. And if you want to worship Jesus in a way that pleases him, then you worship him right now in the moment. Well, there's a third thing that we have in our outline, and we're going to close with that. And I'm going to invite Brian and the team to come on back out as they lead us in one final song of worship because this will just take a few moments. Right down next to number three, the final thing we see in our text, and that's the sanctimony of Judas. And we see that in verses 14 through 16 again where we read, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 silver coins, and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The word sanctimony is just another word for hypocrisy and deception. In contrast to Mary, who gave an open testimony of sacrificial worship, Judas gave a secret testimony of hypocrisy and betrayal as he went to the religious leaders with that question, what will you give me for him? The answer was 30 silver coins. And don't you know that those religious leaders who hated Jesus so much have been trying to get rid of Jesus almost from the beginning of his earthly ministry? Don't you know that this emboldened them even more because they now believe with the help of Jesus that they are in complete control of the end of Jesus? But that was never the case. And again, we go back to how we began to the sovereignty of God. It was never the case because our God, his sovereign control over all things means that he can use even the most wicked, even the most dark, even the most calloused hearts of sinful men to accomplish his purposes in the world. And so while the story, at least in the context of our text, ends on a sad note, it reminds us all the more that nothing that we see between now and the end of Jesus' earthly life should surprise us or alarm us because God is in control. And God is in control of your life as well. And there's nothing you can do in your life that's more important or more valuable than worshiping Jesus. And we betray Jesus when we pretend a faith that we don't really have. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father, I'm so grateful for the chance to open up the Bible and worship you through the study of your word. And now, I pray that you'll take the things that we've talked about, the truths that we have encountered, and that you'll apply them to our hearts, and you'll challenge us, and you'll encourage us, and you'll direct us with these truths. Thank you so much for Mary and her sacrificial act of worship and what it teaches us about worship, that you're worthy of the best that we have to give, that you're worthy of any criticism that we'll face, and that you're worthy of our worship right now in the moment. Help us to have spiritual hearts that recognize those moments. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.